You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Director and screenwriter Oliver Stone joins the Post to discuss his new memoir, Chasing the Light, which explores his complicated childhood, his time in combat in Vietnam, and his career in filmmaking. Let's listen. Hello, I'm Anne Hornaday, Chief Film Critic here at the Washington Post. My guest today is the Oscar-winning director and prominent and peripatetic filmmaker, Oliver Stone. Mr. Stone's memoir, Chasing the Light, was published last July. It is just now out in paperback. Oliver, welcome. Thank you, Anne. Nice to see you again. It's wonderful to see you. And full disclosure, I didn't read this book. I inhaled this book. Oh, this good. is a book that our that our readers and our viewers are going to want to x out your day get a comfortable chair and read because you take us on an incredible journey and an incredible ride much like your your own films um and oliver as you say in in the introduction we just heard this is the first 40 years and i was really intrigued and i found it revealing that the very first chapter is called child of divorce um, that is clearly still a primal identifier for you. And I wanted to ask you about that. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about the before and after of, of that period of your life? Yeah, it's, uh, it's mom and dad, right? I'm, I'm an only child, grew up in New York City. And I thought my life was really beautiful. It was, uh, I had an idyllic childhood. They had, uh, I thought they had money. And it all worked for a while, up until about the age of 15. And then they suddenly got a divorce. And after that, it was a shock to me because I didn't know anything. I was in school and they told me by telephone, long distance telephone, that it was over. And I was quite stunned. It was, it's a trauma in your life. It's like people lie to you. My parents had been very happy together and all of a sudden they're telling me they're not happy. And I deal with that and I go into the details of it because it was quite a divorce. It was brutal. And I never, I didn't see my mother again for a while, really, basically. And then it took a while to heal. Went off into a spin, into which basically I went to Vietnam as a teacher. And then I came back to college, left again, and ended up in Vietnam as a soldier. So my life was rather disrupted for five, six years, and then I came back from the war. And Vietnam was quite a trip too, you know, it was not easy to come back from that thing. And when I got back, it was, I went ultimately to film school, but after a rough year of adjustment. Uh, and I talk about Vietnam in a very straightforward way, which I've never done before. And I think it's very honest about what I saw over there. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, again, what happens is the lie. You know, um, when I talk about the lie, I say it with a capital L because that's what it is. It's the lie we told ourselves to go over there, the lie that we were winning the war. And we were, in, I was in the front line and we saw a lot of combat, but it was clear that we were not winning. So I came back kind of deluded, you know, deluded by all this. Uh, and you have to realize that in this period, Kennedy was killed too in 60. Right in 1963, which was when uh, my parents divorced in 62. So there was quite everything was happening at one time. The causes of Kennedy's death, I had no idea of. I accepted the Warren Commission at that time. So when I got back to the States, I went to NYU Film School and 
trying to funnel all this, what I'd seen of the world into, into learning film. You know, um, you have an incredibly vivid, and you're right, you are, you are um, stunningly candid about your experience in Vietnam. And there's a, there's a haunting passage where you describe coming across a scenario, a, a, an absolutely brutal scenario of dead soldiers. Um, and you describe it as almost a spiritual experience, um, that it had a kind of strange spiritual beauty and power. Yeah. And you have to realize that I, I wrote the book when I'm 74 now, 72, whatever I did. When I was there, I was a kid. I was 21. And in that battle, that particular battle, I was 21. I didn't, ha I didn't see it that way. It was look in recounting it, looking back at it. That's what I see. It was a very strange uh, all human wave attack, actually, on January 1 in 1968, first night of the year. Uh, and we were attacked by a regiment. And we were about 800, 1,000 soldiers. It was quite a battle. And yet, in the middle of all this all-night explosions, uh, I did not see one enemy, nor did I fire my gun, my rifle. Uh, it was a strange experience, and I describe it in the book, I think, as well as I can. But looking back, you know, at the time, I was just, I didn't see the war in its perspective. I saw it, I was trying to stay alive. It was a grunt, it was a grunt's point of view, and that's what I put into Platoon when I did that. This is a different take. This is looking back at the war. Right, right. It's it's incredibly powerful. And and one episode that, that is part of your coming back from Vietnam is when you go to Mexico and you write the novel that you, later was published as A Child's Night Dream. But that's where you find yourself, right? That's where you find when it's, it's in that act of creation and of writing that you feel um, that you're not a projection of somebody else's expectations or um, and, and as a writer myself, I just feel like this book is going to be such a powerful experience for for anyone who's on a journey of self-discovery and those moments that make you, you know, the moments that forge you as a, not just an artist, but as a discrete human being. Yeah, I identified that in the book as the first time I was able to be honest as to who I was. I had no identity before that. I was a school product. Uh, I was trying to be a good boy. I tried to be conformed. I went to Yale University. I did everything right. I got into Yale, but I couldn't last. I, I didn't see the point. I didn't see the point of that whole life. Uh, and I think that's part of the problem we've had in this country, this dislocation. A lot of people have felt this, and certainly I was one of the early people who felt this because uh, I never recovered in the sense of going back into society in a normal way. Uh, uh, the uh, is that an answer? <laughs> or is that yes, it is because it's like it's a break. It's a break with that bourgeois track that you might have been on at one point in your life, and then and it's also very very generational. And and I can't, you know, we're here to talk about your book, which goes through the making of Platoon. So, but but this, I, I can't ignore the fact that this year marks the 30th anniversary of JFK which I feel is such a generation, symbolic generational um, anniversary. And you did mention the murder of John F. Kennedy as one of those ruptures, right? It's one of those lies that maybe you didn't recognize as a lie at the time, but that you came to. And I'm interested, we've obviously, we've talked about this, but Oliver, I'm interested to hear you, you optioned 
to make JFK, you optioned two books that were advancing pretty, pretty out there um, conspiracy theories about the assassination. And my, I, I, I think I and other viewers would be curious, were you intending for JFK to meet the audience where they already were? Because uh, more than 70% of Americans did not believe the Warren Commission at that time. Were you meeting the audience where they were, or did you want to change minds with that movie? No, honestly, I was in the very in the mass. I I had no opinion of it. I was making movies. I started with, as you know, Salvador was my first successful movie as a filmmaker in the 80, in 1985, and then Platoon in '86, which was a huge success worldwide. It, nothing better could have happened. I mean, it was like the dream come true. I'd always wanted to be a filmmaker since NYU Film School when I at the age of 23, and here I was around 39 years old, finally connecting in a big, big way. And I, uh, uh, that's where I ended the book because frankly, a lot happens before the end and it's the right ending for that moment. After 1986, after Platoon, a whole other set of things happened. Uh, I make more films. I learn how to make films better. I make, uh, I make Wall Street. I make, uh, Born on the 4th of July, talk radio, The Doors, uh, which was a raucous big film. And we, we, I was learning each step of the way. And that's what I was concerned with at that time. Of course, I had an outlook on the world. I was always interested in, in the world news and politics. But this woman, uh, Elaine Ray, who had published this book by Jim Garrison called On the Trail of the Assassins, which was his second attempt to write about this assassination. He'd written another book in 1969, Inheritance of Stone, but this one was on the trail of the assassins. It was written like a thriller. She gave it to me in, in an elevator. I mean, it was a whole story there, but I read the book, not right away. I, I, uh, I read it over a period of time, absorbed it, and it was a hell of a detective story. And I loved, uh, you, I, since my film school days, I'd loved the film Z by Costa Gavras, I hope you remember that, 1969, I believe. Uh, Costa Gavras' story of a, of a murder in Greece, of a political murder, stars Yves Montand, and uh, it's beautifully made film. It unravels as it goes, you find out more and more. And I thought, here, here is the basis for the movie. We could make, we have these events that happen in Dealey Plaza. We show them the way we absorb them on national television, we show all that, the murder, the, and the murder of Jack uh, of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald by Jack Ruby, and the stunning series of events, the funeral, it all overcomes us with emotion, and that's the way the movie begins. And then the the district attorney of New Orleans, which is a true story, Jim Garris, thought like everybody else, which is this is the way it was. But then, years later, he meets the senator Russell on the plane in Washington D.C. off the plane. And they're talking casually about the assassination. And Russell, Richard Russell of Georgia, who was on the Warren Commission, uh, tells him that he has his doubts about the film and about the shooting and why. So uh, Garrison goes and he starts to read. He reads the, uh, the Warren Commission book, which is six volumes, and he reads all the, all the details. And then he starts reading all the other stuff he's read or you hear about. He digs deeper and deeper and deeper, and there's a lot of contradictions that emerge right away on the primary evidence, by the way. So that's what hooked him. 
And we show that in the movie, his development, his obsession, his growth into the, his, his, his growing concern about, because a lot of these events took place in New Orleans, which is where Oswald was stationed for a while uh, prior to the assassination before he moved, was moved to Dallas. And there's quite a bunch of characters in New Orleans, as you know. It's a very strange and exotic city. I quite liked it. Uh, Garrison, uh, it, the thing grows bigger than Garrison ever dreamed. Now, I knew Jim, and I, you know, I'm telling it from his side, but it was a much bigger story. Eventually, it turns into another movie, as you know, where he meets Donald Sutherland at the halfway point. And Sutherland, who's identified only as X, who's based on a, a multiple character called Fletcher Prouty, was a real man, as well as another individual, Richard Nadell. That story is much bigger than the Garrison story. It's a bigger story of a worldwide concept of the foreign affairs, what Kennedy is doing in office, why was he killed, what were the motives? And that's what the movie becomes about. But again, did you did you set out to change minds or did you just want no, it sounds oh, no. to me that you saw you saw a great dramatic device, you know, for a sort of a great thriller rather than to be a po to to say this That's is the exactly. way it happened. Okay. That's exactly. Um, That's exactly. And you know, the, the, another thing Oliver almost more more powerful I think than whatever theories people want to embrace about the Kennedy assassination because to me JFK always proffered multiples it never really landed on one it was kind of this grand sort of collection of rabbit holes but now 30 years later we live in rabbit holes it almost feels like the rabbit hole of JFK has become our collective way of life and and the mistrust of institutions that Mr X is sort of an avatar for is now among us. I mean, it's just taken off. I mean, it's 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 interesting to me that JFK comes out in '91, the the same year that the internet comes out, right? So here we are. But tell me, what do you make of where we are now? Has has healthy skepticism given way to more destructive cynicism? Well, as one of the as one of our interviewers, Daniel uh, David Talbot says in the film, once you kill a sitting president in high noon in Dealey Plaza and blow his head off, uh, you, it's, you're not going to go back to normal and say, oh, well, we found this wacky, this crazy lone nut who killed him. It doesn't work. It, it's not going it to, doesn't, it doesn't really work as a narrative for this country. What happened was much deeper than that. And there was so many inconsistencies, so many holes in the Warren Commission. I'm not going to go there. But it's very important to go back there at one point, and that's what I did in a separate film, which I'll talk about with you in a moment. The point is that you cannot remove legitimacy from government like that and get away with it. And the people knew something was wrong. They didn't know exactly what was wrong, but they sensed that something had gone astray, like anarchy had set in. Some, met some method of control was being exerted because forces that were more powerful than one person were able to kill them. Forces that were somewhat, uh, I mean, clearly related to intelligence agencies, to possible military agencies. And these forces came to dominate American life right now. Vietnam, shortly after Kennedy was killed. And nobody asked, you know, what was Kennedy's real policy on Vietnam? Well, it's a very interesting story. And we go into it in this documentary called JFK Through the Looking Glass, which is coming out this year at, Cannes, at the Cannes Film Festival. And it's it's 
the story of Vietnam is one of many stories in the world picture. But he Understood. was going to pull out of Vietnam. He was very clear about it. And that's what people get confused. Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, who took, him o who took over the office, went right to war quickly. He went to a, a far more aggressive posture in Vietnam, which resulted but in what war. Do you, but what do you make of today, though, Oliver? I mean, you have to, you, you well, have to agree that we are in a completely, you know, it's gone. It, tell me about how you feel about the conspiracy theories, that, the QAnons of the world, and the big lie of the election being stolen. Listen, I, I have no truck with that. I don't follow conspiracy theories in general. I'm, I think it's, it's, it sounds silly, but I'm not going to go there. The point is, I've been interested in this case, and I've done a hell of a lot of work with it, and so has my, so have a lot of researchers. And this is a solid where we went to a war on a false basis. It was a lie, another lie. And that war was a disaster. It resulted in many changes, but not enough changes. Unfortunately, the same forces that made that made that war happen continued in our life, and they controlled us and f pushed us into another war and another war and another war. And soon, in, it was in Iraq, and then it was, uh, as you know, in uh, Iraq a second time, and then uh, Afghanistan, etc., and on and on and on. And we're still stuck in this. We're stuck in in a military-industrial syndrome where a lot of money, trillions of dollars, are spent fighting wars abroad against forces that we call darkness and evil, but we don't really know who the enemy is. I think we, we propagandize an enemy, make him far bigger than he is, and we don't, I don't know what we're fighting. We're just fighting because the military needs to keep going and needs to be funded, as do the intelligence agencies, which have enormous amount of budget. So these things factor in. That's what we're in. We're in this loss of purpose, this anarchy which came about, started really in 1963 on that day. That's what the link is. And we make that link in this new film. Um, I want to talk to you about the documentary. You know, you've, you, in recent years, you've, you've left the narrative feature space and gotten into the documentary space, making films about people like Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez, and most recently about Vladimir Putin. And you've been, you've been criticized for not being Confront, as confrontational with them as you sometimes are with, with people here. And I just wonder, how do you, but let me, let me proffer this. Reading your book, I realized that, did you go into those interviews less as a, um, an adversarial interviewer than as a person investigating character? I mean, was, tell me a little bit about what you thought you would, yeah. what that style of interviewing, where it got you. Well, I think uh, you, you, I'm, you're talking about a lot of people that I, every time I was going in as a dramatist, and I never pretended otherwise, I didn't say I'm a reporter from the Washington Post or from CBS News. If you look at the reporting from those, from all of our major networks, it's very hostile when it comes to people who we deem to be enemies, whether it's uh, Chavez or whether it's Castro or Putin. I've never seen an interview done from the American perspective where they allowed the subject to express himself in, his, in, in what he was, he was seeking to do, what his purpose was. Castro was very articulate, and so was Chavez, and so was Putin in his way. And I think I gave them a chance to talk, and also in their native language. We never hear Putin speak in his native Russian, and we had a very good translator, uh, uh, interpreter working with him. 
I think it's uh, crucial to understand Putin's point of view, as it was Castro's, Chavez's, and also Yasser Arafat, too, was in another one of my documentaries. Uh, now, you can fault me for not being uh, adversarial enough, but those interviews never pay off. I, those I've seen where Mike Wallace goes in and beats him, beats Noriega on the head or whatever, they don't work. You don't get anything out of it except the position. This is our position. Why are you this way? Why are you not behaving better? Uh, it, it goes nowhere. There's nothing learned. Uh, so I think I've been very humanist in my interviews and allowed the subjects to express themselves and ask very intelligent questions. Um, it's not necessary to be their enemy. It's necessary to get them to express themselves. That's my point of view. And as that, I guess you could say I'm a dramatist. Uh, and I think they're great stories. I think they're those. I'm very proud of those movies. And I took a lot of heat flack for the last one for Putin. But frankly, I'm very proud of it. It's it's a record for all time of a man who very few people have gotten to. Even the Russians tell me they've never seen their president. But so frank as he was on that interview. Well, oh, I could I could. I could go on and on about just that alone. I, I'm curious if you, um, with the with the new news about the colonial pipeline hack and coming out of Russia, I mean, very little happens in that country without him either knowing it or sanctioning it. I'm curious if you think <laughs> you see any well, of his fingerprints you know, on there, having come listen, to know him so well. Yeah, there's been a campaign, a war against Russia going on for a long time. It it, it started again in the United States around. 2006, seven, when he made that speech in Munich. But I think there's no evidence really of the aggressiveness of Russia. The aggressiveness is truly coming from the NATO forces that have encircled Russia and that are also, by the way, encircling China. And I, you know, this is a big policy point, huge, of huge importance. And if my life has any importance, maybe I'll come to a place where I can deal with it and confront it. In, in this book, I only go as far as, as you know, 1986. I was a babe in the woods. Uh, I've grown up a lot since then, seen the world in a much harsher light, a more realist light. And we have to have people in the United States who speak up for the peace point of view, for let's make partners with the world. Let's get along with China. Let's get along with Russia, Iran, and so forth. We have to change our point of view, because we are seeking to still be the only power in the world that is in control of the world. We cannot continue on this path. It's a suicidal path. And I think many Americans agree with me, but it's never been allowed to be stated politically. People who say this type of stuff never win off it, never win elections because they're, they're ridiculed or marginalized in the press, to be honest. Again, I could go, I, I wish we had more time, but we don't. And I do want to return to the book. And I want to return to, to this amazing journey that you trace, that you, that you take us through. Because in a lot of ways, Oliver, this is a portrait of a different Hollywood. You know, I mean, this is a time when you had a champion in someone like John Daly, this great producer who allowed you to make those movies you wanted to make and, and championed you, advocated for you, stuck, stuck by you. Are, do you, do you? Is there a place for you in today's Hollywood? Are you, are you <laughs> both artistically I, I and just uh, as a business? I, I, I think, yeah, you've put your finger on a pulse. And I'm not sure I have the right answer, but I do know that it's been, I've been very lucky in the sense that I've been able to make 20 films. Well, actually, the films after Platoon, I've been able to make the Platoon, Salvador Platoon, about 18 films the way I wanted to make them. 
which is quite incredible. And also I sought out the financing for each one of those films. And they were not, none of them were easy to get made, none. Uh, but I always stuck to what I had written or co-written. And it was very important for me. I never became a hired director. I never did a, basically a, a, a job outside my, what, my own mindset, my own writing, co-writing. The last film I did, Snowden, which is in 2016 came out, was made, was financed by French and German and some Italian sources. We finally got some financing from the United States, but frankly, we were turned down by every studio. Why? The, the, Snowden, the Snowden script was a good script and his story was told, it was done with his input. It was his version of what happened. And he was an American, whatever you think of him, hero, or you can call him a traitor if you want, but whatever you think of him, he's a, he made the news, he had impact on the world. And that was the story I chased. And I did it authentically, and I think the movie is accurate. He says so. And it didn't, uh, it didn't get any much distribution in this country. Uh, it was much better received in France and Germany and in Europe, not in England, but in Europe. So I'm puzzled. Uh, I'm, I am puzzled. Uh, you can argue that the film on its merits, you're a film critic. I don't know what you said about it, but uh, those are the kinds of movies I want to do. I think I, the Assange movie is important. It was, it was done, but it was not done in the proper way. I do think there's a very important movie in that film. And uh, maybe I'll come back and do that. Uh, uh, but uh, it's a struggle every time, every time. Well, yeah, the and business there's no is denying, well, and I feel like, you know, I became a critic very soon after, you know, in the 90s. And that was when it all, that was when the tent poles took over, right? I mean, I feel like you're, you were kind of riding a crest of a wave where the whole culture of Hollywood changed, the culture of movie going changed, audience expectations changed. And so maybe these more, I call them dangerous movies, right? These are the, mo the more substantive, uh, sharp-edged uh, zeitgeist capturing films that you have done just consistently and that this book um, is the beginning of. And that's where I, we, we are close on running out of time, but you are so oh. great in this in this book about writing about the emotional highs and lows of there are moments in the in this story where you don't think you're going to be able to live another day in terms of making your next film and then it ends on that triumphant oscar night when platoon wins best picture and it's just such a vivid it's just a beautiful ride um and of course like all great screenwriters you leave us with a cliffhanger so i must ask is there a sequel coming Yes, I'm working on it. I got the, you forgot. I got a kiss from Elizabeth Taylor that night. That was also very important, and I it mean, was the because she was the movie star of my youth that I most was awed about. And to get a kiss from her, it was an amazing night. And it, it kept. It was the flower on the cake, the cherry on the cake. So after that, you know, where do you go? That's a real high. You have to remember. I also got an Oscar before that for Midnight Express. So this is my second one, but this one was the one. Now. It becomes an interesting story then, because how do you, where do you go after your dream is achieved? I'd made the film I wanted, the, the most important film, because I'd been in Vietnam. So what do you do next? Well, I'll tell you what you do. One thing you do is you learn, the, you learn how to make films better. And you, I went right to Wall Street because my father had been in Wall Street. So I knew something about it. And I wanted to do something about that world because it hadn't been done in a while. 
And that's sort of what I've been doing ever since, trying to keep something fresh, uh, do something that hasn't been done. Talk radio is next. No one knew about talk radio. And then uh, uh, Born on the Fourth of July was a story of Ron Kovic, which was a sad, a sad story, but about Vietnam and about the country and about what we went through. So I followed my path that way, and I'm very lucky and I'm very grateful. And I guess if I can't make the movies that I want to make, I'll write the book about making those movies and tell the truth about them and tell the truth about the obstacles I faced and the difficulties this country is facing. Well, I'm glad to hear there is another one coming because to anyone who's interested in finding yourself, um, perseverance, um, creative audacity, uh, and, and political courage, I would say read, read Chasing the Light and then read the next one. Unfortunately, Oliver, that's all the time we have today. I can't thank I you enough it. for joining us. Appreciate you having me. Thank you, Anne. Bye-bye. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for watching. You can tune in at 11 a.m. Eastern time tomorrow when my colleague Robin Gavon will interview the secretary of the, of the Smithsonian Institution, Lonnie Bunch, and Anthea Hardig the director of the National Museum of American History, as, a, uh, as museums around the country prepare to fully reopen. And of course, you can always head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find more information about upcoming programs. For now, I'm Ann Hornaday. Thank you again for joining us today. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com dot com.